get a cup of coffee in here, please? that bad a day out i mean it's uh as far as november goes here in new york not too bad i'll take it it's it's um gray and overcast as usual here but not too cold not as cold as it was over the weekend so again i'm taking it thank you for being here good morning folks it's uh monday Ooh, i got a little bright there uh it's a monday uh no <laughs> November 29th, 2021, Thanksgiving weekend is behind us. I hope you had a wonderful holiday weekend. Uh, mine was um, a little weird, <laughs> a little weird. Spent Saturday night on the back of a float in a parade um, playing music. It was 30 degrees out, and it was kind of surreal for me. Uh, first time I've ever played in a uh, parade just to see the amount of people that will come out and wave hi at somebody who's just driving by on a back of a truck playing music who they don't know, not somebody famous, not a celebrity or something. Thousands of people out smiling, happy to be out in the friggin' cold, just waving at a parade going by. Uh, it's a very uh, weird situation for me. Uh, my hands were freezing cold on the guitar. I'm wrapped up. Mike is dancing along, staying warm. I guess he had many layers on. We were on the Grinch float. And we did stop short a few times, and the Grinch fell on top of me. <laughs> uh, very, just a, a very weird experience. But uh happy time, I guess, for a lot of people. For me, it's just very weird to see so many happy people. I mean, I don't get the parade stuff myself. I just don't get what the big whoop is with the parade. Um. Played a few gigs over the weekend, and that was always that's always good to do. Um, some uh, some very older folks and some for for the regular uh, rock and roll fans. <laughs> anyway, I uh, spent some time catching up on issues with Andy, and I'll be talking about that a little bit later uh, this morning. Um, issues with Andy podcast. Uh, interesting one this week. Um, I had been a couple of weeks behind on those, uh, but if you haven't checked it out, Issues with Andy on Patreon.com. Check it out. It's one. It's the best podcast uh, for a group setting of uh, comedians, really two comedians and two other guys <laughs> uh, who are just hanging out in a very uh, casual chat about what's going on in the life of Andy Andrus. Um, so, uh, but it's, it's one of the funniest podcasts you'll ever hear. And, um, I highly recommend it. That's all I'm going to say about it. Now we'll talk about it later. Also Fauci and, um, Ted Cruz are in the news. I want to talk about that. Joe Rogan, uh, always trending. I hate Joe fucking Rogan. Now I, I, you know, I hate, I hate to hate people. I don't want to be a hateful guy. 
but Rogan is going so far off the deep end and uh, way too big for his own britches. Needs to be taken down a notch. He's so full of shit and so fucking stupid. Um, it, it angers me. It angers me now. So I, I have no uh, problem saying that. At this point in my life, I'm full of hate for Joe Rogan. If I saw him, I would probably want to kick his ass. And don't give me the shit about him being a black belt and all that shit. He's a, he, he's a coward. Uh, and he doesn't know how to fight outside of the ring. <laughs> so don't give me that that shit. But he's also um, very stupid and very uh, conspiratorial. Uh, gets emotionally attached to any, I, the last idea he seems to have heard and wants to push that as uh, truth and fact. Disgusting. And what's even more disgusting is the people that just follow him like he's he's now the most important person in the world. So, uh, I want to talk about that a little bit too. And then I spent a good part of the weekend, uh, as uh, a lot of people my age did, uh, watching the highly anticipated Peter Jackson docu series about the Beatles called "Get Back." And that's a, I have a lot to say about that, and I will, uh, I will be commenting on that for the bulk of of this. Uh, morning. So, a brief note. I think I'm going to be switching things up already uh, with this morning format and starting an hour later. Because the West Coast, when we start here, it's 5 a.m. there. I don't think people are quite ready uh, to have their coffee with me at 5 a.m. over there. The East Coast might be already be in the cars. Who knows? And I, I could just do what terrestrial radio does and that's just repeat myself uh for the new audience that comes on every hour just repeat the last hour i don't want to i don't want to do that i'm going to make it free-flowing and keep it free-flowing in that idea so probably going to be starting at nine i'm mulling that idea over for the rest of the day today but it looks like that's going to be the case so where do we start today uh i guess let's start with fauci Fauci and Ted Cruz get that politics shit out of the way. Well, Rogan is a bit of politics shit, too, so I'll get both of those out of the way pretty quickly here. Um, Fauci uh, responding to um, Ted Cruz saying that he should be prosecuted. In an an interview, a reporter asked him about Ted Cruz saying uh, he should be prosecuted, and he laughed that off, but he didn't answer the question. You know, the whole corona shit has been so fucking politicized, and it's so ridiculous. But uh, Fauci, from the start, has been a divisive figure in this thing. It's clear that he is politically opposed to uh, the previous administration and more aligned with the current administration. Come right out and say it. It's clear that uh, Fauci's a Democrat and acting as a Democrat. Now, he says that the opposition to him is equal to the opposition to science. No, I think it's the opposition to him is the the idea that the people on the right could tell his bias right from the start. And when you're in a position like that, you have to be really, really careful. Not to show the world your bias. Everybody's going to have some bias. Everybody. 
even me, <laughs> some bias somewhere along the line. And you can't, when you're in a position like that, you can't show your bias. But Fauci has shown his bias, his cards and his bias right from day one. And we go back, uh, and I'm sure uh, there's a matter of record on this, right back be- at the start of uh, the pandemic. I was very critical of him saying um, the the public can't trust a guy when you know his bias. Not a, it's not just about politics. It's not just about the political aspect of it. But the public needs to know that this guy is shooting from the hip and not not playing one side or the other. So here's the thing now. Uh, the, the he's become a divisive figure in this stuff, and as much as I dislike people like Rand Paul, Rand Paul uh, asked Fauci questions that he seemed to have lied to Congress uh, about about his uh, whether whether gain of function research had been going on, whether the NIH was behind it. Uh, or supported it and all that stuff. Now, let's be clear. Um, lying to Congress, if you or I did it, we'd go to jail. We would go to jail, and then we'd be prosecuted in a heartbeat. But we've pretty much set a precedent in this country that lying to Congress is not against the law if you are rich enough and powerful enough. If you are one of those people at the top of the food chain you can lie to Congress with impunity. And we've seen it happen so many times that to prosecute Fauci for that now would definitely seem like selective prosecution. We've let so many people, Republicans and Democrats off, uh, who should have been prosecuted for lying to Congress. Never were. Again, if you and I were, we'd be in jail. So I'm kind of torn about this. Uh, uh, Should... Congress bring you know, and Merrick Garland when when Ted Cruz asked him about it he was uh, evasive he said we don't comment on investigations and open cases that's very convenient on one hand I would love to see somebody uh, in the power position be held accountable for lying to Congress the same way I would be on the other hand. I don't want selective prosecutions either. And and where other rich and powerful people have gotten off a line in the Congress, um, they kind of set that precedent. So I don't want to, I don't, I'm kind of torn on this. Do I want to see uh, Fauci answers for lying under oath to Congress? Yeah. Do I want to see him be the first one to do it? Because, uh, and we can't go back in time, right? We can't go back in time and say, well, let's, Hillary Congress, Hillary Clinton lied to Congress about Benghazi. And we can go down the line of people on both sides who lied to Congress about one thing or another while under oath, who weren't prosecuted. We can't go back and reopen those cases. I don't know. Love to hear your opinion on this. What's the right thing to do? Uh, Open up the Pandora's box and and prosecute uh, Fauci or just let it slide? Your opinions matter. I'd love to know what what you think about this. I'm on the fence. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, he made a big joke of it. He still hasn't admitted that he uh, he lied about it. And he 
he puts it, he tries to portray it as uh, being against him or or any criticism of him is criticism of science. That's just not true. It's not true. So there you have it. That's the Fauci situation. Never uh, too too controversial, too um, too apparently uh, biased uh, for the public to to hold a position like that. I'm a little slow this morning. More coffee. More coffee. Rogan. Let's get that Rogan shit out of the way. Every day he's fucking trending, man. Every day he's trending. And why now? Well, apparently, he's spreading uh, the myth that the Russia collusion uh, story was all manufactured by the press. This is a Glenn Glenn Greenwald uh, fabrication, by the way. Uh, And that Trump was completely innocent, had nothing to do with Russia, had no loans with Russia, no deals with Russia. He knows nothing about Russia, just like Trump always said. That is completely and utter bullshit. Yes, Democrats and a couple of people involved in the Democratic Party were involved with MSNBC in trying to foster the Steele dossier narrative. The Steele dossier had nothing to do with the Russia uh, investigation and uh, all, all the stuff that Trump was involved in in Russia. I'm going to lay this out as quickly as I can for people with a brain to understand. It's not a press manufactured story. What we have is what we know happened. We know for a fact happened that when the whole thing came up, Trump lied about it, said, I don't have any deals with Russia. I don't have any loans with Russia. I don't know anybody in Russia. And then we have tapes of Trump in Russia talking about his deals. We have his own lawyer talking about his deals that were pending right up to election night uh, for a Trump Tower in Moscow. Those deals led straight to uh, Vladimir Putin. We know those deals were in place. We also know there were loans issued for his golf courses and other properties that he got financing from Russian banks, Russian money. We also know he was in Russia for that uh, Miss Teen World, whatever, Teen Universe, whatever the pageant he he was there for. We know he was there for that. And that's uh, where the alleged P-tape P happened. Now, we do have a very strong, very strong evidence that the P-incident, in fact, happened because Trump believed that tape existed enough to in DEFCON 5 point in his uh, campaign, put Michael Cohen, his main fixer, on getting that tape. Now, if you didn't believe that tape existed, you would not assign your fixer to go find it for you. We have that testimony uh, from Hope Hicks, his loyal confidant. We have that uh, testimony from her in front of Congress, and she had no reason to implicate Trump like that at all. She would not do that because she, she remains loyal today. So she wouldn't lie about that. So I believe her on that. And I believe uh, that Trump did send Michael Cohen looking for that tape. Michael Cohen said that under oath as well. And But Michael Cohen said he doesn't believe the tape exists after he went looking for it. Nevertheless, the incident happened enough that Trump 
knows that the incident happened because the tape could not possibly exist if it didn't happen. Follow me on that. I hope you do. Um, so we know that happened. Now, here's what we also know to happen. Now, the press didn't make any of this stuff up. This is this is verified stuff. This is Hope, uh, Hope Hicks, Trump's main, uh, main squeeze, if I want to call it that, because... I wouldn't doubt something was going on there. But uh, his main uh, trustee in his administration at that point, key trustee, key key trusted person in his administration, uh, said it. uh, And um, Michael Cohen, who was his fixer, verified that. So we we know that's true. Here's what else we know is true. We know that the uh, pop star guy, Russian pop star, who was instrumental, his father was instrumental in that pageant uh, business, uh, contacted Donald Jr., uh, Donald Trump Jr., and said that they had a Russian spy who had dirt on Hillary Clinton, and she would love to meet with him at Trump Tower in New York City. And uh, Donald Trump Jr. wrote back to him, if it's what you say, I love it. And they set up a meeting at Trump Tower. Now, we know this not from the media. The media didn't invent this again. This bullshit story that Rogan is is trying to pass out that the media invented this stuff is just pure nonsense. We know this because somebody hacked Don Jr.'s emails, and then he admitted it. After he denying it originally, he had to admit it because the email stamps came uh, very <laughs> came out very easy to verify. His email did show that he set up a meeting and actually had the meeting in Trump Tower. He named the people, Donald Jr., uh, in front of Congress, named the people who were at that meeting. It was everybody in Trump's uh, senior campaign team, except for Trump himself, who was upstairs, supposedly, not involved in it. Uh, If you believe that, uh, you can buy a bridge from Trump uh, real estate. Uh, But let's take that at face value. okay trump's upstairs and doesn't know about this meeting with his senior level people who are meeting with a known russian spy to get dirt on hillary clinton willingly openly colluding planning to collude now what they claim is she offered up dirt on hillary clinton that they had already had so she wasn't particularly useful to them and they dismissed it and so um, the media did not make that up donald trump and all the uh, senior team have verified, at least to that point, that's what happened. That meeting happened on a Friday afternoon, Friday evening. Half an hour after that meeting ends, Donald Trump Sr., who is upstairs from this meeting, supposedly, goes down to a rally and says that, he first of all, he tells the crowd that he's going to have a massive dump of uh incriminating evidence about Hillary Clinton on Monday, on the following Monday, he was expecting, and he told them to stand by, as he always, that's a a favorite phrase of his, stand by, for this massive dump of dirt on Hillary. Now, all of a sudden, he's expecting dirt that he didn't have an hour before. He's telling this crowd to, to expect dirt on Hillary Clinton. This is Donald Trump saying this. And then as after he's done telling them that on Monday... They can expect this uh, new information about Hillary Clinton to come out. He says, oh, and by the way, Russia, if you're listening, we sure could use those 30,000 emails. 
Now, Trump claimed that was a joke. Do you believe that was a joke? Do you seriously believe that was a joke while his his senior staff is meeting with a Russian spy about dirt on Hillary Clinton? He's asking Russia in public, on camera, for 30,000 missing emails. Now, those emails uh, were part of a WikiLeaks dump that Julian Assange uh, arranged with cooperation of Russia. Uh, Julian Assange says that, not the media, not MSNBC. None of this has anything to do with the Steele dossier. But here you have stupid fucking Joe Rogan. Gets me angry every time I fucking say his name now. Telling his millions of retarded followers, imbecile, stupid followers, cult member followers, that MSNBC and... uh, a couple of Democrats manufactured this whole thing because of the Steele dossier has some really mis- bad information in it, misinformation. The stuff about Michael uh, Cohen being in Prague is absolutely not true. A lot of, There are errors and mistakes in the Steele dossier. Steele dossier had nothing to do with the Russian investigation. Uh, it came straight from Trump's own mouth, from Trump's own people. Uh, his own lawyer said he had the, the deals with Russia in place right up to the election. His own lawyer being Rudy, not Michael Cohen at that point. So many things that they lied about and then were found out to be true. The Trump people, not media, no, no none of this stuff. All the stuff is absolutely verifiable. So Joe Rogan is out there telling his, his people the Glenn, Glenn Greenwald uh, narrative. Now, what's up with Glenn Greenwald? I think he's just trying to get himself uh, cozied up with Rupert Murdoch for some kind of uh, payday, big payday f- with the Fox News organization. I can't understand why somebody would be that willing to just fabricate shit for the right, far right wing uh, media, uh, if not for some kind of grift. Um, because Greenwald knows better. He knows better. He knows the dossier had nothing, nothing to do with the Russia investigation or uh, Mueller or any of that stuff. We also know that uh, Trump said uh, if they look into Russia, he was fucked and his presidency was over. Now, uh, this is before... This is before MSNBC was really pushing the dossier stuff anyway. So why would Trump say uh, his, his administration, his presidency was fucked? He was fucked and his presidency was over, is what he said. Why would he say that if MSNBC had manufactured this whole thing? It's just ridiculous. The media did not manufacture Russia. Trump is guilty as sin of... Uh, at least the intent to collude and obstruction, obstructing the investigation. You don't obstruct an investigation where you're not guilty. There's no need to. Ten, ten counts of obstruction. I'm going to leave it at that. Rogan. Fuck Rogan. Don't listen to Rogan. If you do and you continue to follow Joe Rogan, you're a fucking idiot. Plain and simple. You can uh, be entertained by a fucking clown. Uh, you can find his comedy funny, and I would disagree with you there. Uh, you can enjoy his podcast for his guests and stuff, but if you follow the man and listen to his um, 
ridiculous conspirator, conspiratorial uh, ideas, you're a fucking idiot. Plain and simple. You really need to um, start to think for yourself or uh, be deprogrammed. Get out of the fucking cult as quickly as possible. That's my last statement on uh, Rogan. Okay, I think I'll take a, a quick break, play an uh, play, uh, intro from uh sponsor piece, and then come back and bullshit some more about everything else that's going on in the world and life in general and all that kind of stuff. Here's this for now. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by TrueFire. Do you want to learn guitar or improve your playing? Are you stuck in a rut and unable to take your playing to the next level? TrueFire has your solution. Over 2 million guitar players worldwide learn, practice, and play with TrueFire. Our learning tools and massive library of video lessons will ignite your technical skills, harmonic knowledge, rhythm playing, and soloing chops. TrueFire's educators are the best in the biz, from Grammy Award winners to world-renowned artists. You'll have access to an unparalleled faculty of over 300 top-notch blues, rock, jazz, country, fingerstyle, and acoustic guitar educators. Using our desktop and mobile apps, you'll work with TrueFire's multi-angle video lessons on any device, anytime, anywhere. Integrated learning tools such as video synced tab and notation, slow-mo, looping, practice jam tracks, and many more handy controls accelerate your learning experience. TrueFire's style-specific learning paths guide you every step of the way. Use our assessment tools to find your starting point, then follow our lesson recommendations and track your progress as you work through your personalized TrueFire study plan. Progress faster with private one-on-one -on -one instruction, group lessons, multi-track video jams, live streams, song lessons, student forums, TrueFire's Riff magazine, premium jam tracks, and much, much more. With thousands of five-star ratings and reviews from amateur and pro players alike, you'll find yourself in good company with the world's most comprehensive guitar learning platform. Grab your guitar and ignite your musicality. Sign up free for an all-access trial today. Click the link in the description to find out more. Oh, uh, here she goes. This is my favorite part of the whole show. Anyway, welcome back. That is good coffee. I hope you got some good coffee. I got some good coffee this morning. Very uh, strong coffee, and I like my coffee strong. Ah, where do we where do we pick up now? Uh, you know, a couple of weeks, uh, ten days ago, maybe a week ago. I don't know. Uh, I mentioned that there were gunshots. Actually, it was a week ago yesterday. 
gunshots that woke up my neighborhood and uh, never investigated. Don't know what that was all about. Yesterday, there was a bomb that woke up my neighborhood, uh, woke up the entire South Shore of Long Island, not my neighborhood. I'm on the North Shore. But it resonated all the way up to the North Shore. And some people, as far as the North Shore, heard it. Of course, I didn't. I slept through it. <laughs> I slept through everything. Bomb. Across the bay, apparently. Um, we don't know the details of this. Uh, bomb. Uh, there are islands across the South Bay, not, to, not far across the South Bay, over by Fire Island, before you get to Fire Island. And apparently... Uh, Two people in a boat, probably guys, I would imagine. I can't imagine it was women, uh, took a, a bomb over to Fox Island, uh, which is an uninhabited island over there, and blew off a very uh, impressive piece of ordnance that blew a crater uh, four feet wide by four feet wide by probably about six feet deep. Uh, and... You could be could be felt across the uh, entire South Shore of Long Island, which spans um, about ninety miles, ninety miles long, wide, I guess, whatever, long or wide, ninety miles from uh, Montauk to uh, Brooklyn Queens area. All felt it uh, loud enough that it it penetrated uh, twenty five miles north. Significant piece of ordinance. We have no idea who did it. We know uh, there are some pictures of a boat running away from the scene that clearly shows two individuals in the boat, speedboat. Why they did it, I have no idea. But while that was going on, and so we have gunshots in the area waking people up, series of gunshots. Uh, no comment on it from the police. Then we have uh, a bombing. A bombing of nothing but a bombing, and no comment on it from the police. Yesterday, we get a text. My wife gets a text message from the police uh, that we should shelter in place because there's an emergency uh, situation. Uh, don't go by, uh, lock your doors and don't go by any windows. Shelter in place, lock your doors, and don't go by any windows. Now, this is my police department who had nothing to say about when guns are going, oh, gunshots going off on a Sunday morning in a residential neighborhood, lots of gunshots going off. Um, bombings, cops have nothing to say about that. What could it be that we have to shelter in place? Well, it turns out some guy 14 miles away locked himself in his house and was in a standoff with police. Uh, turned out to be an unarmed standoff. They never, by the way, never came back and say all's clear. We never got that text that says all, all's clear. You can go by your windows and unlock your doors again. This happened at 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon. <laughs> so we have people like this guy was going to escape a house the police had surrounded and somehow walk 14 miles in the freezing cold unarmed. So I had to be afraid of him. <laughs> This is what the police. This is the, my police department at work. Uh, mind-boggling stuff, folks. You know, I I just can't imagine. And then we never got the alt clear, so they just left that hanging there. It's going on. It's going to be uh, eighteen or twenty hours or so ago now. Just left that hanging out there. That 
Uh, and I wonder how many stupid people are still locked in their house and afraid to go by their windows because they they haven't found out that this thing is all over or even found out what it's about. And I've seen a lot of people on social media still asking what, what it was about and still need some explanation about that. But again, the, the gunshots, the bombings mean nothing. This guy locking himself in the house because he's having a mental breakdown, whatever. This is what we need to be concerned about. Your police department's at work, folks. Of course, my police department is one for the fucking books, folks. If you don't know about Suffolk County Police Department, here you go. Quick one. My, uh, our former chief of police is the main suspect in a uh, serial killing dating back at least 12 years now, probably longer than that. Lots of bodies. He's in, He went to jail for beating up uh, one of his snitches who found <clears throat> a gym bag full of sex toys and and uh, whips and chains and, and that kind of stuff. He was also part of a, a demonic uh, murder. As a child, he was a witness to, a key witness in a case where uh, a satanic cult murdered a kid uh, and buddied up with the police. At that point, he put him on his road to becoming chief of police. Anyway, he went to jail for beating up the guy who found the sex toys that implicated him as a main suspect in serial murder. Now, the DA from my county, who uh, was also a good friend of his, who was also his friend from the days of this, uh, when he was a child of that satanic murder case, he was also uh, uh, indicted and went to jail for covering up um, the extortion case and, and the beatings, uh, the assault is so we have the chief of police the da and uh some other high level people in the department all went to jail for covering up what seems to be uh uh the chief of police's uh involvement in serial murder and it's still unsolved serial murder in case where at least I think the last number I saw was confirmed number with 12, uh, 12 victims, but there are probably more than that that have not been ever, ever been found. That's my county's police department. And so uh, it shouldn't surprise you that they're also uh, inept as, as they are corrupt. So that's that. Uh, moving on to this weekend, uh, like a lot of boomers, and, and here you go. We're getting into the meat and potatoes of the, the program now. The Beatles stuff. A lot of people my age, boomers, the Beatles are at a very important part of our life story. People my age. Uh, I know their music is loved uh, by a lot of people of all ages. People older than me, people younger than me, even very young people today enjoy the Beatles. There are still some people I know who hate the Beatles for whatever reason, which is hard for me to understand. But they're out there. So Peter Jackson took the footage from what was a very depressing and uh, sad end to the Beatles legacy in the, the film Let It Be, which came out in 1970. He took that footage and uh 60 hours of video uh, of film footage and 150 hours of 
no, uh, 60 hours of five camera angles. So it's probably like 300 hours to review uh, of film. And then 150 hours of audio they recorded for that project and re-edited it into a docu-series called Get Back for the Disney Plus channel. This is well known. Everybody knows about this. Been talked about a lot this weekend. I mean, if you're on Twitter, you can't miss the Get Back um, stuff. It was a priceless, for me, it was like getting in a time machine, having the opportunity to somewhat rewrite history, although... Uh, it's not an unbiased rewriting of history. Peter Jackson is obviously a Beatle fan and wanted to, after seeing the, the raw footage, he wanted to write a happier ending to the Beatle uh, saga. So he went into it, I think, with that in mind. But it was and is a priceless look into creative process of arguably one of the greatest songwriters in the history of songwriting, Paul McCartney. Uh, his process in general uh, was enlightening to see. I think it's important for people in any creative genre to kind of get a grasp of, of how that process worked because and I don't want to ruin the movie for uh, the docuseries for anybody. I don't think I am. But with some explanation here. They went into a project, and I don't know where they set the parameters for this project, or how and why, that they had 14 days. I know they rented a movie. There was a movie studio that was available for use for 14 days uh, because the Christian, what the hell? So some film that <laughs> Ringo was going to be in and, and Christian is in the title and I can't Christian miracle, Christian magic, something like that um, uh, was going to be uh, filmed in this, this studio, but they weren't using it for 14 days. So the, they lent it to the Beatles. They said, you can have it for rehearsal and put your little uh, show together. Now McCartney, I think was the one who came up with the idea of doing 14, so writing 14 new songs and recording them in, in this 14 days uh, period and rehearsing it for a uh, television show uh, and a movie docu documentary movie that they were going to put out very aggressive project 14 songs in 14 days it's a lot a uh, couple of things there now in those days uh, 14 days was uh, 14 songs was typical for an album well, it wasn't necessarily rigid at that number but uh we saw as time moved on from there we band started to put out smaller album 10 10 songs per album uh and then the album oriented rock era came in and would didn't matter could be one long song like it wasn't like a palmer i think had three songs on brain solitary maybe they had more than that but long songs so one two songs per side or something like that. Anyway, in those days, there were 14 songs in them. Where they came up with the idea that they had to get this all done in 14 days and couldn't move on to another space in 14 days, and where they set these parameters uh, for themselves, I don't know. But they felt some pressure on this. Went in with nothing. Uh, so it was apparent watching uh, this that McCartney's songwriting process was 
really uh, front and center of how this documentary uh, was going to move forward. And so we see McCartney with ideas for musical things that he had um, played and kind of had ideas for songs, but not the lyrics worked out. And he would sing the lines without the words and work out the words as they were playing. Now, that's a tough thing. Uh, being a songwriter in a band, I can tell you, and be, having done it from time uh, that this movie was filmed, <laughs> um, that's a tough thing. When you go to uh, your fellow musicians in your band and you want to get them psyched up about a song that you want to do, a new original song, and you don't have the words, uh, it, it's really hard to impress them. But he, he felt comfortable enough with uh, uh, his close friends, the Beatles, who have been together really since very young teens. I mean, Harrison and, and McCartney were 13 and 14 when they joined the Quarrymen. Lennon was uh, 16. Very young. So they've been together all that time. So I guess there was a, that comfort level. But to go into a situation like that and say, I did, here's a song and just start humming words and, and try to hope they're going to be energized and um, enthusiastic about learning these songs. Difficult thing to ask. I got a great song. It goes like this. No, that's not a great song to me. <laughs> Where are we going with this? Uh, so interesting to see McCartney's process and how he struggled to and change words and uh, that he was definitely a music first guy and very rarely a lyrics first guy, which is, you know, if you look at some of his music and you can tell uh, how, how that works with him because his lyrics are not necessarily all that deep. Uh, but so his process is, is something to behold in this thing. Now, it seems that Lennon kind of had a similar process in that, that he was going through some things with Don't Let Me Down where he would just, you know, not have the words for it, not even have the it part. Nobody ever done me like she does me, love me like she does. Ooh, she does. That part's a 5-4 thing. He didn't even have the timing down for that. Not even sure what the line should be. All he had was don't let me down, don't let me down uh, to start off with. So he did have a little bit of that working stuff out too, and you could see them uh, changing their lyrics as they went along. Fascinating to get a hold of their process. Now, George, George was like me. He came to the band because, probably because he wasn't the most respected songwriter of the group. I mean, everything up until, nah, I shouldn't say everything. Because early on, he did have a couple of hits, um, on you know on the earlier records but he would get one or two songs um per record and mccartney and and lennon would get the bulk of the credit and the bulk of the time on uh all these songs though but uh harrison's um process was much different he would come to the band with a completed song uh very worked out thoroughly uh thought out chord wise and um 
and lyrics have it all set to go to impress the band and get them interested in doing their songs. So, except for what what was the song he was doing? Oh, oh Brown Chewy was working out on the piano, which was interesting to see because that wasn't quite finished. He had the the idea for it, but he was still working out rhythmically the stuff on it. But for the most part, Harrison was more like a traditional songwriter for a band where he would come to the band with fully formed songs where McCartney uh, was far more loose in I got an idea and this is we're going to work it out and this is how it goes. And Lennon was somewhere in between, but uh, there are definitely elements of him having sort of the same process as McCartney on on some of the stuff. So that's interesting to watch. Now, the point where in the very beginning of episode one, or yeah, episode one, I guess it is, where McCartney and Harrison are having the tension that was a, the main narrative of the Let It Be film. It ends out to be a very passing moment in the beginning of the docuseries. Uh, just say this. One of the things, it was apparent that Harrison was not happy right from the start of this project. That And maybe they were a little, uh, especially uh, McCartney was a little bit, dismissive or, or or not not necessarily in tune or not not aware didn't have the awareness of what was really going on with with George and find out that he really wasn't happy really wasn't into the project and uh, a lot of things were going on with them at that time but you could see that when they were rehearsing I think it was two of us in the beginning and McCartney was not happy with what Harrison was playing. Harrison was playing shit. He was playing some bad notes. He didn't seem like he was all that interested in learning it right. I mean, I have to... I'm not taking sides here with McCartney or, or, or Harrison. I'm just trying to explain it, uh, what I got out of it. My perception is George wasn't that enthusiastic. He was weakly uh, trying to find some part that interested him, him in a tune that he didn't find all that inspiring. And McCartney was frustrated with the fact that he had set a 14-day deadline on this thing and was sounding like, shit, we, we haven't played together in years, and we come in and we're all just, like, not on the same page. So he, he did have the awareness that it wasn't going well, but not the awareness of what was uh, really going on with George at that time. And George made a comment to McCartney that says, uh, I don't want to say anything to you because I know this. I annoy you. And McCartney came back with one of the coldest cuts. <laughs> really? He said, uh, and it, it was it, it kind of went over people's heads. I don't think most people even realize it when, it when it happened. He said, no, you really don't annoy me anymore. And the conversation continued. No, you really don't annoy me anymore. And then what that says is, I know in the past you pissed me off and annoyed me but i've grown to the fact where your little piss ant shit that you do that used to annoy me i've learned to dismiss it as little piss ant shit and you don't annoy me anymore that's what i i read into that line uh good morning carl good morning craig good to see you guys uh 
let me see what what Craig is saying here because he's from the conversation they have at lunch. It seems Mac and Harrison felt a bit run over creatively. I was surprised to see Lennon said he kept his ideas down as well. Hmm. I don't remember. What do you mean? Oh, have at lunch. Oh yeah. Well, I didn't. Is that lunch? I never seen him eating anything. <laughs> so when you say lunch, anyway, uh, where was I? Oh yeah. So you know the the fact that Harrison wasn't happy. Uh, right from the beginning, was kind of, I think, lost on McCartney. He understood that things weren't going well, but he didn't understand how really unhappy uh, George was with the situation. Okay, so uh, the the next thing that came became completely apparent to me within the first 20 minutes of episode one and this is this is something uh, mo- nobody is talking about. This is the um, the influence, the heavy heavy fingerprint of Bob Dylan on all three of uh, the instrumental guys: <laughs> McCartney, uh, um, Lennon, and Harrison. Um, it's impact. Uh, it's really abundantly apparent in the first 20 minutes of the first uh, episode where, first of all, John starts doing the, um, everybody had a go- hard year. Everybody had a good time. That's, um, that's uh, Dylan's influence. But then they started goofing around playing other songs and they went straight to a couple of two or three, uh, Dylan songs right in a row. I shall be released. Um, I forget what the other ones were, but they they were playing Dylan songs, and you could hear that uh, Dylan nasally uh, vocal style coming out of both uh, Lennon and McCartney at that point. Um, and then there's that um, the Beast, which I'll talk about later on, is that six finger bass, which was um, Something that Rick Danko had used in the band, Bob Dylan in the band, again, this is Bob Dylan's influence on the Beatles, showing clearly and loudly uh, through through this film early on. Uh, and I know this is a right in that period where Dylan had gone electric and the band was, uh, band was the biggest concert draw in the world at the time. And they had just... Um, they had done the, the stuff with Dylan, and then Dylan broke his neck, and they were in Woodstock, and they started to record. And they were recording it. Uh, the first album from uh, music from Big Pink was all created in a house that Dylan uh, helped them uh, get in Woodstock, New York. But then they went out for their second album, The Band, and they recorded that as a live band in Sammy Davis Jr.'s pool house. And so the setup the Beatles kind of adopted for the Let It Be movie was almost exactly the same kind of setup that the band used for recording their second album. And that wasn't by uh, coincidence at all. If you listen to Hey Jude, uh, the single, and the, in the end when they're vamping over, no, 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 watch. <laughs> McCartney is doing some ad-libs, and you hear him say loudly and clearly uh, at one point, uh, take a load off Annie, uh, which is a reference to the take a, uh, take a load off Annie, uh, the weight 
band band song that had just been released. They were extremely influenced by what Dylan and the band were doing, and it shows throughout. Now later on, even in that first episode, Harrison played a another Dylan song and was singing it. We know later on that George became uh, part of a band with Bob Dylan called the Traveling Wilburys. It's uh, if you're looking for it, if you're looking at that movie with an open eye and a uh, a sense of musical history and what was going on in the '60s, you can't help but notice um, Dylan's influence on the on the movie. Now, this brought me back to a conversation as a little side note here that I Rick Beato, uh, musicians know him. Rick Beato is a very uh, popular YouTuber, great teacher of music theory, great music historian, and analyst of, of music stuff. And uh, a while back when Paul Simon sold his um, catalog of songs, somebody in the New York Times, a music critic, I can't remember his name, wrote a piece about how um it was comparing Dylan and Paul Simon and saying that Paul Simon will never um never stand up to Bob Dylan in terms of his influence and his um just his impact on music in, in general and Rick Beato had, uh took ex- exception with that and then started to talk about all the great music that Paul Simon had written and produced over the years and all his achievements. And I agree. I mean, I've always been a huge Paul Simon fan, still play a lot of his music and uh, I'm in awe of the man's talent and, uh, and some, and the way he's pushed the envelope uh, in, in a lot of degree ways after the Simon and Garfunkel years. But my knee-jerk reaction to that, like, you got to be fucking kidding me, man. There's no way you can match up uh, Paul Simon's influence to Bob Dylan's influence. Bob Dylan has influenced more people, changed the way music in general was created, distributed, all of it. I mean, if you look at what was going on in, in music when Bob Dylan came on in, in the scene, um, the kind of stuff that was being written was not, was not deep. It was not political. The stuff that was ma- making it to pop music had no politics in it all. All of a sudden Dylan came on and changed that completely. And uh, then when Dylan started to go to electric, even before he came out in the band with electric, he came out with a, a single called like a rolling stone i think it's like eight minutes long it's ridiculous it's it's very very long now at that point 45 singles were three minutes tops because of audio quality reasons and uh the thought of a single that could be that long uh and um about the kinds of things that that song was about and the kind of lyric lyrical content that changed the doors opened up doors for so many different kinds of songs that could be written, could be uh, sung about and could be recorded for so many musicians. So he changed the world in that respect. And then he influenced just about every writer of that generation from, you know, Jimi Hendrix doing like a Rolling Stone 
Um, and how many people have covered Bob Dylan's song? So I was arguing a bit with Rick Beato on that point that, you know, the comparison of Paul Simon to Bob Dylan uh, was just, it, it's silly. Don't even go there because Dylan is the most influential writer and uh, musician of my lifetime, of any of our lifetimes. Flat out. That's the the opinion I was uh, of. And then for the last couple of months, I've been really looking at old Paul Simon interviews and uh, really studying his work. And I, I had just started to come around to the fact that, wow, uh, his work has influenced a lot of people in a lot of, especially the stuff where he started going to South Africa and, and South America and coming up with uh in, including genres people had dismissed or not even thought about into popular music. Uh, there, there was a lot of influence in that. So I started to come back towards, I see Beato's point a little bit, until this movie. And then what you see is all the Dylan influence in the vocalizing and, and then playing his songs and that stuff. And then what you see is the political commentary. And you see McCartney looking for ways to incorporate what was going on in the news in the UK and to in the US to some extent. That political and current event stuff infused that into their writing, which they had never done before. And that was Dylan's influence. I mean, when you see McCartney uh, singing about immigration and... Um, and things that were going on, and Lennon's uh, beginning to talk about war and all that kind of stuff, that's that's Dylan's influence, really clear. So now uh, I was back at the point where I was going to start to accept the comparison from Paul Simon to Bob Dylan. I'm back firmly in the Dylan. There's nobody with the influence and uh, just the the sheer uh, impact on music uh, that comes close to Bob Dylan. And, you know, you can look at the Beatles, their influence and impact on so many musicians. Dylan's footprint is easy to see on those guys, and those guys were driving the bus of pop culture at the time. So there you have it. I'd love to hear your take on the Bob Dylan stuff, if you got any ideas or thoughts on that. Uh, but that's where... I what came across to me in the beginning of the movie. Now, um, what else do we have here? Um, the quality of the songs that McCartney was writing at that time. Now, that that was kind of surprising for me because I, I'm, you know, coming up as a Beatle fan and all that stuff, and because he had so many great melodies and all that stuff, I kind of got it in my head that they can't write a bad song. But then I look at some of the stuff that they were actually putting out. Maxwell Silverhammer. My God. What a piece of shit that song is. I mean, I could not write a hit like that if I tried. Uh, I'll put that out there first. You know, first and foremost. I can't write. But if (laughs) I can't write a song with that kind of cultural acceptance ever. But it really is a stupid show. It's a childish song. It's a, uh, 
it's just something you would not expect from a band with that much influence. A, a, a band that wanted to be taken seriously in so many ways, uh, not be just a pop phenomenon that they were when they were younger, to go with a song like that, and then not quality stuff. And you could see some of the stuff just spilling out of uh, McCartney as the, the words weren't that important. That that was the takeaway I got from that. The words weren't that important. If they could be changed on the fly like that, and you're just going through stuff, you're not really thinking too too much about the importance of the lyrical content. Other things I was surprised about was the fact that the Beatles could suck. There was a lot of sucking going on in the first episode, <laughs> and not the kind of sucking that Joe Rogan likes to do to himself. Uh, <laughs> The kind of sucking where you hear guys singing really bad harmony, bad notes, George playing some bad notes with some really bad tone. Really interesting stuff to see. Um, that Because up until that film, we had never seen anything unpolished uh, or heard anything unpolished from the Beatles. So everything, the impression was, wow, they always come up with the tastiest licks. I mean, you listen to Harrison playing and some of the uh, little lead parts he comes up with and, and uh, had on their records. And the impression you get is that it was always that way. You don't see him working up to that point. But in this movie, we see him getting a song that he's unfamiliar with and trying to find something for it and playing some out-of-key notes and really having some terrible tone and struggling. And so uh, for me, as a musician, that was like, wow. The Beatles suck it when they're first learning a song, too. <laughs> For me, it was almost, I don't feel so bad about myself now. <laughs> See, you know, they can struggle to find a part. Because, you know, we live in an era where there are specialists in, in hired guns and studio musicians who come in and first take on a song and they have it they have the perfect tone for it the the perfect part uh automatically just seems to come to them and i think harrison at that time was going through a transformation too he talks about a little bit in, in what eric clapton's playing uh was doing to him and influencing him in the idea of just being able to ride a solo go with it and flow in flow and write a natural flowing solo piece uh without thinking about it too much and george even says i'm not good at that that's not something i do george likes to he's one of these guitarists and there's a lot of them and i'm like this very much like this is you need to kind of go through it and work out the part and know what you're going to play you can't just drop it and play from the heart for endlessly like like Clapton could play solos for days and never get tired never hit a bad note you know, I mean just playing and it's not always just the you know the pentatonic scales and running up and down scales it's it's in between notes too and playing melodically and all that stuff but just having an ear and an ability to flow with the song in in lead style and I think that was something new that for, for Harrison who came from a very structured world, pretty much like I do where a uh, songwriter, you kind of work out where the guitar part is going to be, what the guitar part is going to be note for note. So, you know, the solo completely, you play it the same every time. And then it's very, it's not very improvisational. 
And what Clapton was doing was opening George's eyes to a type of playing he had never been exposed to before. Now, he called it jazz. Eric Clapton never played jazz in his life. He wouldn't know a jazz chord if it's bit him in the ass. He's a blues player. Uh, A (laughs) white-appropriated blues player, but a blues player. Um, But Harrison had no... No exposure to that, I think, up up until we met Cla- Clapton and the Blues Breakers and all that stuff. So it was that's interesting to see. Uh, um, the other another thing that came to mind was this idea of McCartney wearing the businessman hat after Epstein died. Uh, McCartney kind of took on the the adult in the room. Um, persona, and he had to do that for to keep this stuff together. And McCartney was the ambitious one. He's the one who had the vision for the Beatles' legacy, if you want to call it that. And he was more concerned with you know you know the Beatles always being perceived as the best band in the world. That's what, that was what was driving McCartney. At least you know, and I'm I know I'm projecting. Uh, kind of assuming these things, but comes from a place of seeing years and years of interviews with him and, and the other guys as well and kind of understanding some of their mindset from their own words. Ah, coffee. So you have uh, you have that. Now, McCartney was the one who wanted to do the TV show and the filming doc- documentary. So He's the one who wanted the cameras there, but you can see him getting annoyed by the cameras at at points too. Uh, one where he kind of actually hits one of the boom mics for let's get this fucking mic out of my way. Uh, a couple of times where he got one time where he lost, he said, "I can't do this on in front of cameras." Where he was having this little hissy fit uh, about the band not being what the the pressure of 14 that he put on him self-imposed pressure of a 14 day limit to get 14 songs written and recorded and make this movie and television show. Uh, he was feeling the pressure of that and arguing a little bit with, uh, both Lennon and Harrison. And it was one point where he got, he took his bass off. He got up out of his chair and went to walk away said, I can't do this in front of the cameras. Well, you're the guy who brought the cameras here. You're the guy who wanted the cameras here. That's interesting. And it seemed like Lennon was hamming it up for the cameras more than anybody. I mean, did a lot more of that, looking straight into the camera, Groucho Marx, uh, uh, breaking the fourth wall type of uh, stuff. Lennon was having fun with that and being silly with that, uh, but it did seem to stress out McCartney a little bit. Anyway, uh, I'd love to hear any of your thoughts on uh, on the docuseries, if you've seen it. Uh, it you know, I know um, younger people, I don't know how what the interest level level from people younger than me is. I know people my age are. For for people like me, it was, as I said in the beginning, kind of like a time machine experience. Like going back in time, and all of a sudden, the Beatles were back together again. It was 1969, 1970, going into, it was January of 1969 when that came out. Now, realizing that, the White Album had just come out a month before that, or a month and a half before that. And it seemed like uh, that was a distant project, a distant memory for them at that point. 
because they were talking about it as and I'm sure they finished those tracks over a year before then. So and they hadn't been together and hadn't played for a while since then. So they drifted apart and they felt that it, like they were drifting apart. Um so there was that. And then um uh, of course Billy Preston coming in uh reignited, reinvigorated everybody and the idea first of all there's a new sound there and you could see all of their faces light up when uh Billy Preston started to play some of those um soulful uh voicings of chords that they hadn't heard almost ever because there was you know for all their musical ability and talent uh there wasn't much soul no and i know they grew up as fans of, of black musicians and black music but it didn't you didn't hear any of those uh influences for the most part in Beatle music. They were very white sounding. And then all of a sudden Billy sits down and plays two or three chords and all of a sudden the texture and uh, timbre of the band changed from this really lily white, clean white bread ivory soap sound to a little bit of gospel, a little bit of funk, a little bit of soul, all in one just from this one guy just sitting down and just rudimentary getting to know the songs. And, and you saw McCartney's face light up. You saw all of them kind of light up. Like, wow, this is cool. And they were all kind of struggling to entertain the new guy. It was like, you know, <laughs> uh, new people to be excited about. Anyway, so he added a lot of energy and excitement back into the project. What is Carl saying here? I like it technically, the remastering of the footage and especially the audio to get this many hours of different personalities and seeing the tension is great. I agree. Uh, here's the thing, though. Uh, as I kind of said in the beginning, it wasn't a unbiased retelling of history. Uh, it was somewhat biased, and Peter Jackson even said this, he picked out the footage, and I, I don't think episode two was ugh, all that compelling. I thought it was quite boring, actually. I give A A plus ratings to the first episode and the third episode. Second one, I think, had a little bit too much of the audio recording of a conversation between John and Paul over what looked to be like a, for some reason, a, like, hospital... <laughs> hospital cafeteria room with a flower pot on the table. I don't know what the imagery was about there, but it went on way too long. Anyway, the, uh, where I was going with this is uh, Peter Jackson had his idea and a statement that he wanted to make with this film. There were tons and tons of more footage that went back into the vault that will never be seen now. And there's still more of the story to tell that isn't Peter Jackson's statement. There is, and so part of that, I would have loved to just seen all the footage. I know you can't really do that. I know from from and from a commercial uh, idea to to release that it just makes no sense for anybody. They're not gonna. But there's a lot of history in there that's still in the vault, and a lot of it is still untold in in. Uh, an objective way because I do think Peter Jackson had a, a narrative he wanted to put out there that uh, it 
it wasn't as bitter in the end as it, uh, as it was portrayed by the original Let It Be movie. Now, what, what come, comes across is clearly Let It Be, the movie totally sucked. <laughs> it was misleading. It was it didn't come across with uh, leaving anybody feeling good about it. So that's one, th- one takeaway from this. The other part is, you know, I think people have been yelling uh, long enough about the Yoko influence on the breakup. And then several years ago, the tide started to change. And even McCartney came out and said, no, she didn't break up the Beatles. The Beatles broke up the Beatles. And that narrative has been going back and forth. There are still people who contend that Yoko broke up the Beatles. I saw somebody uh, comment, I think it was Emma Hagelin from uh, Sam Cedar's show. Can't think of her name. I think it was her who said uh, that it's clear that Yoko did not break up the Beatles, but also her ever omnipresent uh, just persona in the thing is just weird. But it's not. It's not really when you think about it because, first of all, she had been doing it for more than two years now she was she was there for all the white album sessions as well so they were used to having her omnipresent but also the fact that just six weeks before that she had had a miscarriage so you would expect they were a grieving couple so you would expect a, a wife to be a little bit clingy after that kind of devastation they were both really devastated by the miscarriage that's not part of the they don't tell you that in the movie, but that is part of why Yoko was as clingy as she was with John. Because you see in later interviews, when they're not as clingy, uh, that was a period of, of, of strife for them, uh, for, for the, them as a couple. And that's clear. So, But they, it's also clear that she didn't break them up. Also, uh, what struck me was uh, that <laughs> I was waiting for someone to keep... No, Carl, you don't have to worry about because Carl says uh, first, let me put... Uh, I was waiting for someone to kick Yoko in, in the chest but you know, yeah, no uh, and then the comic looks bad it doesn't look bad because when she she was doing that cat howling into a microphone but here's the thing. McCartney was going along with that, too. This was kind of a playful moment for them, which I, I was surprised that, you know, even though Yoko seemed to be out of her mind, insane, just yelling stupid stuff into the microphone, uh, Lennon and McCartney were having fun with it. Paul was playing drums on it and having a ball. Uh, so, um, it, yeah, the, well, the welling, man. <laughs> I know. <coughs> you would have think. You would have thought that at some point uh, in all of this that she had she had learned something about um, being on some key. <laughs> you know, to say what key is she singing in? All of them, <laughs> all of them at once. Um, no, she she had no she had no idea of tonality. That doesn't make her a bad person, and she didn't break up the Beatles. I can understand the wanting to kick her. <laughs> for someone to kick the kicker in the chest, I understand, especially if she's going to sing <laughs> or make that sound that she makes. Uh, but she's not a bad person. She didn't break up the Beatles. Uh, Linda uh, and Paul's relationship 
was was something that was obvious and uh, you, you know obviously he loved her very deeply that that was well known but um the nature of their relationship in the uh the specialness of Linda Eastman I think she took a hard she took a lot of beating in the 60s from girls who had crushes on Paul McCartney obviously and thought well she's not a glamour girl and he deserves better than that. He could get better than that. Paul McCartney could get any woman in the world. Why is he settling for her? She's lovely. I mean, I never saw her as uh, being that attractive as a young man because I was I was nine years old when they made this movie. <laughs> uh, and looking up at her, I didn't say because the standard of beauty in that is what people like Barbara Eden. I mean, come on. So you know, uh, <laughs> this was the glamour beauty the the perfect woman that you that was portrayed in that time so linda eastman was far from that but looking at it now in her very natural very uh authentic uh persona very beautiful woman extremely beautiful and i that had escaped me for all these years i didn't see what paul mccartney saw in her until this and you could tell how much she loves him and you could tell how dedicated she was to him uh great relationship everybody should have that once in their life and so that came across that's something new i learned with this uh docuseries that wasn't there um and uh what technically really surprising in this movie is the way they were, the way these, this thing was done, PA system in a room while they're recording, That's you, you never see that. And if, if non-musicians out there, you see a recording session, they have headphones on for a reason, so you don't get feedback because what's coming out of the speakers goes right back into the microphone. How they managed to do this and do it in a room that felt like a live band situation with PA speakers in the room, and not get all sorts of audio. And they did struggle a little bit with it. You see mic placement and stuff like that and placement of the speakers, getting it to sound right. What a technical feat that is. Uh, and people um, overlooked that. The other part of the technical stuff, uh, kind of technical stuff, is Glenn Johns. Um, his influence over not just the engineering of it, but the actual song arrangements and productions and listen glenn johns at that point had earned his stripes as an engineer he had engineered the who and rolling stones and lots of gold records and just about everybody and anybody who was anything coming out of england that day at that that era he he was had worked on their the music so he had earned his right to say but when he tells paul mccartney not to sing uh, the part that McCartney wanted to sing on Don't Let Me Down uh, that ended up getting scratched out of it. And, and uh, Glenn Johnson said, no, just let the guitar play that part. Uh, at first, McCartney dismissed him, but eventually came around to doing it uh, Glenn Johns' way. Now, that influence, I didn't think Glenn Johns had the ability to tell Paul McCartney, don't sing. And Paul McCartney eventually listened to him and took that advice. Wow. 
That's pretty strong advice. A lot took a lot of balls for a producer uh, to say that. It was especially co-producer because George Martin was uh, still the producer, even though uh, Glenn Johns was the engineer co-producer. A lot of balls for him to say that to Paul McCartney at that point in his, his career. So, uh, but he did it on more than just that. The other part, other songs, he would come in, and uh, there are a couple of two or three of those incidents in the film with Glenn Johns' influence very apparent. Another thing about the film, uh, and I, obviously, uh, <laughs> I looked at this film uh, with a uh, very interested eye. From the, you know, obviously, I'm a big Beatle fan. There's no no hiding it. Paul McCartney, uh, his glee when he saw the cops on the rooftop. He he turned around and saw the cops, and he. he, he Big old smile. I, I don't think, it, and I've seen hundreds of interviews with Paul McCartney. I've seen so many film clips of him. I don't think I've ever seen a, an authentic smile and and happy moment as I did when he turned around to see the cops were there to uh, pull the plug on him. It's like he he definitely foreshadowed that in earlier in the film when he said that's what he was aiming for, and then when he got it, it was like a dream come true. I can relate. That is the rock song moment. Uh, but I think <laughs> um, what was pushing that was this idea of uh, the competition with the Stones at that time, and particularly at right at that time. Um, you had the Rolling Stones, the bad boys, and the Beatles were kind of the good boys, the white bread, soft cells, and they didn't like that because they came up... At, as they were used to being having a little bit of a bad boy persona, especially in Hamburg in the early years. And then later on, as uh, Lennon made some comments about Jesus Christ and uh, being more popular in Christ and all that stuff, they were driving controversy and mothers hated them because of their long hair and the influence they were having on their young boys and all this kind of stuff. So the Beatles wanted that some of that bad boy stuff back and McCartney uh, being a, a savvy businessman, savvy, mar- savvy marketing person, as well as the uh, composer and player that he was, uh, recognized that and wanted some of that bad boy rep back. And what better way to get the bad boy rep back than to get arrested while you're uh, doing something, you know, like a rooftop concert or something like that. And disturbing the peace in London, like it was, it was a pretty bold thing to do at the time. You know, I could say I can relate because one of the happiest moments of my career was when they had to stop a show for the police to pull me off stage. Uh, police are here. They need to talk to you. And we never, my band never took breaks, and we still don't take breaks. So once we start playing, we're, we're there to play until for the duration. We're not going to come off stage for anything. Unless... The cops are here to talk to Matt, <laughs> which is a story for another day. But um, I tell you what, that was a, a very proudful moment for me, prideful moment. Uh, and it did kind of give the band a boost and a different kind of fan recognition when something like that happens. 
fans in in, in rock and roll <laughs> like bad boys. And the idea that the cops might need to come and arrest your guitar player in the middle of a set, people found that interesting and talked about it for a long time. And it, it, it was, you know, it was something that didn't go away. It was a topic of a lot of conversations for, uh, so, uh, anyway, I understand the, uh, McCartney's glee at getting uh, arrested or having the cops show up. That was a, an interesting point of the movie for me. Something I could relate to. What else is there? I think that's about it. I think about about covered everything I have to say about the film. Let me think. Is there anything further to cover? By the way, uh, let me know your thoughts. I see Carl saying, I'm off to finish that EP. Carl, are you a musician? And are you writing, are you writing songs and, and producing stuff? That, this I did not know. Um, Alan Klein was they kind of briefly mentioned him and they're going to start getting involved with him at the end of this movie as he wants to be their manager Alan Klein was the desperate, was the real death of the people uh, oh. <laughs> uh, episode which it was two or three anyway uh, Alan Klein if we're looking for anybody who broke up the Beatles with Alan Klein Alan Klein was a uh, terrible manager for them he was in uh a thief he misappropriated all their funds their money almost bankrupt apple or maybe he did it uh bankrupt apple um so there's you know if you're looking for anybody who really put the nail in the coffin of the beatles obviously they would have grown apart anyway uh they were growing apart uh but might have been a lot Less animosity if Alan Klein hadn't come on the the scene. Epstein wouldn't have died. The Beatles would have been a whole different story. But he did die. You can't go back in time and rewrite that part of history. Sorry, uh, Peter Jackson. There's only so much you can rewrite in history. So that's uh, that's really uh, wrapping it up on the, the Beatles get back. I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments. Should I open the phone lines or not? I don't know. As I mentioned earlier, some of you probably weren't with me. I'm thinking of starting the show, uh, the morning show, an hour later from now on, starting at 9 o'clock Eastern instead of 8 o'clock Eastern because it occurs to me that we want to include the maximum people. The West Coast, it's 5 a.m. at 8 a.m. here. And so that's kind of early to be expecting uh, or even hoping, not even expecting people to get up and uh, participate in this show. Uh, got caught up with issues with Andy on, what was it, Saturday? Really funny show. Really, really funny. The latest episode is uh, hysterically funny. Andy recapping uh, his experience at Falco's. Uh, which I can't believe there's still titty bars anywhere. <laughs> uh, I can't believe there there are still titty bars anywhere in the world. But uh, a comedy club annex to a uh, a titty bar is very weird situation. Um, <laughs> I don't I don't know how you make that work. Anyway, so and it appears that. And it's happening a lot here, and I see it all the time, where 
the clubs aren't putting shows together and management and, you know, these management companies, Omnipop and wh- whoever manages comedians aren't necessarily putting these shows together. It's comedians or people who want to be comedians um, putting together shows, producing shows and putting on these bills uh, and, and trying to create stage time for themselves somehow by putting these shows together or just trying to make a buck somehow. But they're not doing it in, in great ways. They're not choosing the best venues and uh, not necessarily promoting it in great ways. It, it feels like Andy might have got caught up in, in something like that with this Falco episode. Uh, is the is the issues with Andy's Billy Preston. I don't think anybody in the audience will get that uh, comment. I think that's funny, Craig. Uh, <laughs> um, but what what struck me at, from that conversation? Oh, there, there's so much about it. Is uh, first of all, uh, Andy is, seemed fine with what went down. It was what I expected. He had a good time. Got a little drunk, got carried away, blacked out drunk, <laughs> but enjoyed himself on the night. Can't ask for more than that. Seems like before the gig, uh, Erickson tried to give him some good advice uh, on how to prepare or what he should do to prepare, how he should, he should approach and stuff. I don't, and I, I think with the best of intentions, and all that stuff, and uh, I'm sure with the best of intentions, well-meaning. Um, but you can't change people. You can't make somebody do your what you would do. And you can't change an artist. You can't change a comedian. You can't uh, you can't change somebody into what you think or how they should approach their art. And so it seemed to me I, I i said this on one of my social media posts uh brett was acting as a motivational coach life coach uh trying to give andy some very good advice but andy wasn't buying the ticket to the to the seminar because he has what works for him and i understand that brett was really trying to give him advice on how to refine that and make it better uh didn't seem like uh, Andy was going to heed the advice at any time in, this, in the near future, or uh, be the or change back into a guy who was going to be more formal in his approach to um, how to lay out a show or what he was going to do it then uh, with a particular show. And I think if if you follow Andy Anderson at all. Uh, you understand irreverence is is probably uh, his greatest asset. The fact that um, some of the observations he makes in real time are as funny as anything anybody in stand-up comedy does ever. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm looking at Craig's comment, and I'm not going to put it up here, but I, I think you're right about that. Uh and basically, the comment is just that he thinks Andy's a little preoccupied with other things at the moment. Um, I would agree with that, and I, I, I more than he's letting on, I agree with that. But um, I, I also think that this is this is who he is, uh, and this is the artist he is. This is the comedian he is, and I, you know, you don't change stuff. It's it's like. Uh, you know, going back to it's like trying to uh, change 
George Harrison and make him be Eric Clapton. <laughs> You're not going to do it. <laughs> it's just not who he is. Uh, so, good morning, uh, Jake. Good to see you here. Thoughts uh, um, on the new Ghostbusters? I tell you what, I don't know anything about it. I know I heard there was a new Ghost. I am not um, culturally hip at all. So I know there. Is, I've I've gotten wind that there is some new Ghostbusters thing. I had no interest in it at all. I remember the first one, and I remember uh, being excited to see it. It wasn't something I would need a remake of. Uh, so if there's been a remake of it, uh, frankly, uh, I'm not going to be all that excited to see it. I don't even know who's in it. If you want to educate me on it, I would love to hear uh, about it, but. I have no thoughts on it other than I don't know anything about it. Uh, but that's just me. I'm an old guy, man. I, that's why I watch Beatles, Beatles documentary. Now, I will say I'm not a television person. I don't have a television in my house. So I had to go sign up for Disney Plus to be able to watch it on a computer, which is a big a big thing for me, for the Beatles thing. I, You know, for me, I that's that was uh, sitting in front of a computer for, what is it, six hours, I think, the whole uh, three episodes is uh, add up to in total in front of a computer and watching it on the computer screen. was I didn't want to do that, but it was the only way I could. I mean, I guess I do have big screen monitors that in other parts of the house where I could have watched that on that, like Apple TV or something. But it is what it is. So, but that was a big investment for me to actually investment in time and energy to be able to say, yes, this thing is important enough for me to go sign up for Disney Plus for a month so I can watch this thing on a computer screen. So, Ghostbusters, no, I would not do that for. That's what that's all I know about Ghostbusters. Bill Murray, you're going to uh, here's uh, and I again knowing nothing about this uh, Ghostbuster movie. How do you improve on perfection, Bill? Mur- you're going to do better than Bill Murray in the original Ghostbusters. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't see that possible. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, who else is in it? I don't know who. Who's the cast in that? I mean, I was never a huge. I shouldn't say I never used it. SNL Ackroyd was great. But other than SNL, I was never a huge Ackroyd fan. Movie-wise, uh, Ackroyd never never did it for me in the movies with his movie career. I uh, did love some of the stuff he did on SNL. I thought it was groundbreaking. The AMFM stuff that he did, all that stuff. Oh, Murray is back in Ghostbusters. Bill Murray is in the new Ghostbusters, but not playing himself, is he? I got to find out about this. Maybe I should do my research on this before commenting on it. I did not know that. Uh, Did not know anything about it, but uh, that's an an interesting fact. Is Ackroyd back? Probably not, right? Um, I don't know. Bill Murray in it now. I'm more interested in it than than I was just a moment ago. That's all I could say about that. Uh, the whole original cast is back. Wow! Now I'm really interested in it. All right, I got to find out about it. They even dug up Harold Ramis. I don't think you had to do much digging up for Harold Harold Ramis. He's been around writing directing stuff. 
uh, just not being in movies. Uh, all right, Carl, have a good day. Thanks for stopping by. Uh, Carl Man, the man uh, from over there, over there. Anyway, we were talking about the Beatle thing for most of the morning. I did start by uh, talking a little bit of, uh, is he dead? Harold Ramis is dead? Seriously? Let me look this up. Are you serious about this? Harold. What did he die of? (laughs) Oh, yeah, 2014 he died. Wow. I did not know that. Film acting world. Wow, what did he die of? Anyway, that's good. That's uh, strange to know that Harold Ramis is dead. I did not know that. Kind of uh, sad in a way. I thought he was uh, directing and stuff. Yes, he is dead. Anyway, uh, so they dig up direct. So what they do? They kind of CGI'd Harold Ramis for this movie. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the original cast is back. Uh, I should look up. A- new Ghostbusters movie and find out something about it before I go talking about it. I opened uh, this morning talking about Fauci uh, and Ted Cruz and uh, then the the Rogan stuff, which, um, no, Ghostbusters, what the hell is that? Uh, Oh, that's Goldbusters. No wonder that makes no sense to me. Ghostbusters. Man, can you type it all? You really go back to school, dude. Ghostbusters Afterlife. Official website, Sony Pictures. Is it out already? Let's see here. Uh, Synopsis. From director Jason Reitman. Uh, and producer Ivan Reitman comes the next chapter in the original Ghostbusters universe in Ghostbusters Afterlife when a single mom and two kids arrive in a small town. They begin to discover their connection to the original Ghostbusters and the secret legacy their grandfather left behind. The film is written by Jason Reitman and Gil Keenan. Uh, directed by Jason Reitman, uh, Dan Aykroyd, based on the 1984 film by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, uh, even Meatman, ba 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 ba. Executive producer Dan Aykroyd is the executive producer of this. I, wow, I did not know that. Ah, see, I don't know anything about pop culture. This just shows cast is Carrie Coon, uh, Finn Wolford, McKenna Grace, Annie Potts, and Paul Rudd. Doesn't say anything about the original cast. Now playing exclusively in movie theaters. Um, that's it. They don't have uh, anything about the original cast in here. What am I missing, guys? Um, what are they playing old film clips for? Oh, they included some of the original footage or something. Gallery um, doesn't say anything about the original cast at all on their web website. Come back and see if these guys are saying anything to me. I've been up since eight and still missed the, the morning show. <laughs> Good morning, TJ. Uh, I don't. I don't know how. <laughs> about this original cast being in here. I don't see anything. I don't, unless you guys were pulling my legs, uh, leg or something, because I don't see anything about the original cast being in here at all. Um, nothing on their website. They have nothing about it. Get the app, film and TV. Uh, no. 
I think you guys will fucking pull my leg. It's not nice to fucking make fun of old people or make them feel stupid. And I just wanna I just wanna put that out there. You guys are really mean to old people, meaning me. Anyway, uh thanks for the information. I'm gonna have to look this up. Uh the Mooney interviews. Oh yeah, thank you. Uh yeah, well I think the second one got uh cut short. Thing is if you watch those um interviews with Lisa Cohn, the the moon uh, escape from the Mooney cult. I'm wondering if you saw any, because YouTube had pulled those down at one point and given me uh, two copyright strikes for each of those, saying those were uh, putting out da- dangerous uh, information, uh, it, glorifying the use of drugs and all this kind of stuff. And they would give my my YouTube channel two copyright strikes, which means I was one more from one away from losing the channel. And so I um, I disputed them, which basically can get you a third strike in a lot of cases. You never, most people will say if YouTube gives you a strike, just kind of go with it, accept it, and take your punishment like a man. And uh, if you write it out, they, it eventually goes off your record. <laughs> but I said, you know what? I, I couldn't see anything wrong with those interviews. I thought they were both, both uh, productive and important interviews to put out there. And so I disputed it, and I won. Oddly enough, I won on both cases, and they removed both strikes. But I was just curious, that, and I asked a lot of people, what those might have given them an idea that those were uh, putting dangerous misinformation out into the world and uh, the only drug-related thing I, I can remember is her her father introducing her and her brother uh, to drugs at nine years old or whatever. Her father lived in squalor, but he wasn't part of the cult. That wasn't part of that conversation. This is what drove her more to her mother's side of the family, which was the cult, was her father's drug use. Her father got was... Uh, dealing drugs for a judge on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, I think, if I remember correctly. Uh, That was the only part that we mentioned drugs in. So anyway, YouTube sent me a letter of apology. Sometimes we get things wrong and reinstated me, which was a a surprising victory because I thought I was definitely going to lose my YouTube channel uh, for sure on that. But I got both strikes taken away. Uh, Like a rare victory against the big uh goliath that is youtube i'm just curious about that but yeah lisa's story is very compelling and i don't think i don't know if you mentioned this i kind of i saw you going back and forth i'm talking to tj now (laughs) i saw you going back and forth with brett rock uh yesterday about some uh somebody in the poconos who i guess uh i don't know it was an abuse thing and i didn't see what the entire conversation was about but you said something about People in the Poconos uh, have a long memory, and they haven't gotten back at this abuser yet. Yet, and I mentioned to you, I pulled the comment down because it was it didn't have to, anything to do with the conversation after I saw the bigger threat. But I had worked for a cult that was based in the Poconos, a cult, not a Mooney cult, a similar cult, <laughs> uh, based in the Poconos in the nineties at the old Playboy Resort which was at that point it was called Seasons and then it changed its name to The Legends. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's uh, over in the Poconos. Uh, and uh, 
uh, they were a cult that met at the uh, that place in the Poconos six times a year uh, for years, uh, and I worked for them for a while, and they were definitely um, known by the area as being a cult, and the area actually welcomed them in because they brought a lot of commerce. Uh, I think the place is closed down now, or they're trying to. They actually tried to sell it again recently. It was. Uh, it's featured in the movie Silver Streak with Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. Uh, it's the hotel, uh, and that they were that was part of that movie. Um, but a unique place. And but the reason I broke brought it up at all was the Poconos in uh, that area of the Poconos seemed to be very welcoming to the cult because the cult brought a lot of business. I'm not going to mention the cult I work for by name. <laughs> well, because I don't want to get sued. That's why not. Um, but because they don't call themselves a cult. They call themselves a school. A school. Uh, but it's it's very cultish. Very much like the Mooney cult. Anyway, uh, so they were a big part of that community for all of the 90s. They've now moved to Austria. I don't know why. Uh, balloon pouring up for me. I got to go check out uh, some of the, the balloons. I'm not seeing it. Why, why am I not seeing Craig? I should just see it right at the top. I shouldn't have to look for this. <laughs> should just come directly to my feed. Oh, wow. Nice. Nice balloon AM airbags. Uh, what is that? A cell tower there over? That's that seems a little dangerous. Anyway, thanks for putting up my my daily fix of balloon point. Yeah, and and wires and all that stuff. Yeah, see, that's the kind of stuff that would scare me with the balloons. Anyway, back to the cult stuff. Uh, so the cult was a, a welcome part of the Poconos community. Uh, then I don't think. That's what they were driven out uh, necessarily, and that's why they went to Austria. I think the conditions of that hotel got so bad. But last I heard, somebody was trying to buy it in. Uh, oh, it's a Poconos Palace Resort? Now, yeah, that's possible. I know somebody was planning on buying it. Like last year, we looked it up, and there was uh, somebody that was talking about renovating again. It was a big part of the uh, commerce for that part of the world for a long time in the 70s when it was a playboy uh resort brought a lot of people there a lot of uh a lot of big name uh, acts and stuff like that it was uh but and they were looking into getting gambling in there at that point and when they never did that's when it kind of fell apart and then it became seasons and then it became legends and then became rat infested <laughs> pretty bad but pretty bad place to be uh yeah uh yeah it, you know the whole thing it was a um a good place to have a cult good place to be uh if you're going to have a cult <laughs> i highly recommend the Boconos. um it was privacy and um you could build a, a really luxurious resort area uh and have a lot of fun in that i mean the, the hotel one we stayed in it. it. It was my own personal playground, which is why I love working for them. What I did for them was um, sound reinforcement, audio, video production, uh, music support, and all that kind of stuff, and lived in the hotel uh, while they were there. 
it, it was for me uh, being a single guy in there and the cult was mostly women uh women who were um fish in a barrel for for a young single guy or oh, youngish i was in my 30s then but um because they were the majority there i mean it was 90% women and because of their belief systems were uh, how do I say this? More <laughs> struggling for ways, very open to promiscuous, uh, promiscuous uh, behavior and uh, sexual uh, gratification. Put it that way. So, yeah, Zorro uh, Ranch, New Mexico, is about to get famous. Zorro Ranch. Let's look this up, folks. We gotta, we gotta find out what the hell Craig is talking about. Zorro Ranch. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> okay. Oh, by the way, the Ghislaine uh, trial starts today. Uh, yeah. Uh, lots of people go there to disappear. That cleric was accused of being uh, behind the military coup, uh, coup in Turkey. Wait. Uh, in, in Turkey, it was up in the Pogos. Oh, I did not know about that. Yeah, no, the Zorro Ranch is a Jeffrey Epstein piece of property out in New Mexico. I didn't know he had. I did know he had some a ranch in New Mexico, but I didn't know any of the stuff was going on out there because I thought he was doing it all on this island that he had. Uh, the deed claims that Jeffrey Epstein's ranch was given to ownership of Jeffrey uh, Gabriel Burkett uncovers a bizarre twist in Epstein's Zorro Ranch property. Santa Fe, New Mexico. Money, secrets, and sex abuse scandals made Jeffrey Epstein infamous. New Mexico state officials cut all ties with the financier who owned and leased property south of Santa Fe for decades. Zorro Ranch south of Santa Fe was shrouded in secrecy. The billionaire behind the sprawling ranch is gone. The only Jeffrey Epstein and his accusers know the dark details of went on that went on near Stanley, New Mexico. Records show that Epstein and the Zorro Trust bought the ranch from Gary from the Gary King family, then built his thirty-three point three three nine square foot mansion in the ninety in the nineties since nineteen ninety-three. Epstein Trust had the state lease agreements for raising cattle on public lands near his uh, mansion. Uh, so I don't. Why is it going to be famous soon? I mean, what's going on with? It? So why would Epstein? They signed it over to a Florida church for two hundred dollars. Ooh, now that's interesting. Uh, and this is just in the last two years. Now they signed it over to this Florida church, which is what's the name of the church? Where's the name of the church? We're not seeing the name of the church here. Uh, huh. Oh, Love and Bliss Church. <laughs> the Love and Bliss Church. Yeah, uh, no age requirement, I guess. Um, wow. He flew 737s and Learjets into the ranch. Yeah, uh, it seems like um, this church is very highly suspect. Why? It, this is a billion-dollar ranch or something, and it was... 
sold to a church for two hundred dollars. The Love and Bliss Church out of Florida, of all places, Florida man. It's like they're doing the shit in broad daylight, man. Uh, it's really so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I wouldn't dig deep to that property either. Yeah. So, Ghislaine is going on trial today. Uh, I think the trial actually started opening arguments and stuff uh, last week. But you won't see it covered. Why? Won't see it covered. You know, Kyle Rittenhouse was covered every day, every inch of that trial. People watch every second of it. Why aren't the cameras... Why are we not allowed to see uh, the Ghislaine Maxwell trial? Uh, what secrets are they trying to protect? They don't want the government, or they don't want the public to hear what might be exposed in that trial. And why, why are they keeping, trying so hard to keep this stuff secret? Now, I watched um, pro- Professor or Dr. Todd Grande on YouTube, who's doing his analysis of uh, Epstein. And the, the, you know, back to the whole conjecture, was he murdered, was he uh, suicide, the whole bit. And he came away with the uh, belief that it was suicide. I'm just going to say this. This is all I know about this. The coincidence of those cameras going out on Epstein's cell, on on the wing where he was held, for the time period where he actually committed or supposedly committed suicide would be, happen to be a perfect coincidence. But I happen to know because I interviewed him and know him personally, the guy who uh, installed the systems in that jail. And that jail has a system called proactive CCTV. And what that does is the second a camera goes down or malfunctions or power goes out or anything, the administrator and multiple administrators get text email, text messages and emails sent immediately when a camera goes down. But supposedly they didn't know the camera was down. But everybody in the chain had to get in a notification instantly that that was happening. So either Epstein was so savvy about this shit, that he could tell that the cameras went down and this is his moment to strike to commit suicide without anybody knowing what happened, if you believe that. Or it was a murder. It's just that simple. It was set up. Uh, Now, you can look at the circumstantial evidence, and I hate to be a conspiratorial guy, but you can look at the circumstantial evidence of who he had dirt on, who he might, the secrets he might reveal. It's not a, a stretch by any other imagination to say people wanted to murder that guy. He was he was on everybody's hit list, everybody who had been fucking kids at his place. I mean, you can go Clintons, you can go Trump, you can go in every direction, Gates, uh, politics, not politics, movie stars, all of them. A lot of people wanted him dead. A lot of people wanted to silence that motherfucker. And so he supposedly tried to commit suicide two weeks earlier and was taken off suicide watch early to be put in this cell where cameras mysteriously went down uh, unbeknownst 
to those people who were in charge of running them when the guards were asleep at just the right moment. A lot of coincidences going on. So Dr. Grande, with uh, his expert analysis, while he definitely has a uh, a stronger foundation in science and and psychology than I ever will, I just think he's dead wrong on this idea that uh, Epstein committed suicide. I know Carl, if he was still here, would be backing me up on this. Yeah, CIA connections, all that kind of stuff. And I think, here's the thing, you know, Epstein was, he had no reason to think he was done. He he was appealing uh, his incarceration, was still looking to get bail. Uh, He still had a lot of uh, possible moves he could make to try to get off and he had gotten off on stuff before and had, had, was used to getting his way with the legal system and loved to flaunt the fact that he got away with it and do do it brashly and out out in the open so i it doesn't seem to me like he would he was at the point even where suicide was his only way out i think he had a lot of options left so you know just uh Again, always asking for your thoughts and opinions on this. Uh, I don't see any way that a reasonable person looking at that case could uh, have any faith in the idea that he committed suicide. Pretty sure, in my mind, that he was murdered. So do you want to hear all the testimony in the Ghislaine Maxwell trial? Uh, Or was Kyle Rittenhouse more important to hear about? Of course, Kyle Rittenhouse didn't have powerful people to protect he only had you know low level high (laughs) low level people to protect people who uh got him guns and all that kind of stuff but that case that case got a wall-to-wall coverage just lane maxwell did he even hear about any of the testimony at all is anybody covering it uh who knows uh, why? What? I know why, but who knows if we're going to hear anything about the truth in that case. Also, of note, the one other trial that's going on today is uh, Jesse Smollett. Uh, Jesse Smollett, the guy who uh, invented uh, MAGA guys attacking him in the middle of an area where MAGA guys wouldn't be caught dead. You know, that, that Jesse Smollett. Um, Jesse Smollett is... Latter day Tuana Brawley, Morton Downey Jr. Uh, mold. He invented attacks on himself uh, for whether it was for self aggrandization or or publicity or whatever. Why do these people do these things? I have no idea. Like Morton Downey Jr., when he did it, the fake attack on himself, staged attack on himself, he was pretty much on top of the world with his show. I think he was just having some kind of mental breakdown, couldn't handle the pressure or whatever. Uh, Tawana Broly, we know, was pressured into doing it by Alton Maddox and Al Sharpton. Uh, Jesse Smollett, what his motive in it, is in this. But I do, I don't know what, what his motive might have been, publicity or to further his career, or if he was just looking to have some influence on helping bring Trump down, whatever, whatever his motives were. I do hope he gets... Uh, some punishment on this kind of stuff and doesn't just walk a slap on the wrist for wasting cops time, wasting the public attention span on him 
in that whole situation and further dividing people because his situation didn't did help in the divisiveness in in America. So I hope he gets punished for it in some way. It doesn't just get probation or slap on the wrist and all that stuff. But I don't really care about that trial as much as uh, the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. I definitely would love to see all of her stuff. Anyway, it uh, looks like uh, we're up uh, out of time for today. I got to get ready for other stuff. I think I have a one o'clock show with Carrie Arrington on, and she's a faith-based writer who uh, has a book out uh, called Life on Pause. I think it's Life on Pause. That's the name of the book. Let me see. Do I have it? Brand. Uh, Life on Pause. That's the name of the book. Yes. Uh, Candy Arrington. I don't know why I call Carly. Carly. Candy Arrington. And so that's her book. And it's about COVID making us take a a worldwide timeout from the rush uh, rushed pace of where things were, and is there a bright side to that? I don't know. It looks like COVID uh, might not be done with us, uh, according to the uh, CDC and all these people who are raising flags about new variant that's out there. Fuck, there's always going to be a new variant. Oh, and one other thing uh, before I go about what what seemed. Uh, really interesting about the Beatle thing before I need to, I forgot about this part of it. They were dealing and and McCartney actually mentions it in the, in the film. They were dealing with the Hong Kong flu pandemic at that time and McCartney kind of made a joke about it. I think I'm coming down with a little bit of the Hong Kong flu. They were dealing with an immigration reform and immigration uh, issues in the UK and in the United States at the time, which is reminiscent of now. A lot of the stuff that they were, and civil rights stuff and uh, all that stuff, a lot of that stuff that, that is in that movie from 50 years, 53 years ago now, 52 years ago when it was shot, still relevant today. Interesting. It's it kind of echoes or mirrors what we're, what we're going through right now. So, um, I will be uh, with you. I think we're going to be starting at 9 a.m. from now on, 9 a.m. Eastern, uh, just to make things a little more convenient for people out west. Uh, and hopefully that works uh, better for people out west. Uh, so that's uh, the morning show for today. I thank you for stopping by. Please write to me and let me know what you think about my Beatle commentary. Broke that down for over an hour. Uh, the Rogan stuff I talked about, the Fauci stuff in the beginning. Uh, uh Definitely interested. Now, I, again, quickly before I sign off here, on the on the Fauci stuff. For those who missed it, I'll break it down really quickly. He lied to Congress. He won't be held. He won't be held responsible for lying to Congress. If you or I were uh, had lied to Congress, we'd be in jail right now. Uh, but there have been many people who've lied to Congress. Powerful people who have not been prosecuted for it. So my conundrum is this. Do I want? Do we want Fauci to face prosecution for lying to Congress, as, as he did, obviously did? Um, or do we want, we not want a special prosecution or selective prosecution of him because so many other people in high positions have been giving uh, a walk, a complete, you know, turn the uh, the other way, look the other way on lying to Congress. So it, it become a point where uh, the law really, it's not on the books this way, but for all intents and purposes, the law is if you're rich and powerful, 
you can lie to Congress with impunity, as many have done before. So why why should Fauci get prosecuted? Of course, there's flip side of that. If you're not powerful and rich and you lie to Congress, if you're like me and you will lie to Congress, you would go to jail. So what do we want to see? Do we want to see selective prosecution? Fauci be the first guy who, uh, with some pedigree and and, and rich and uh, powerful elite status, uh, become prosecuted for lying to Congress, be the first one in decades to be prosecuted for that? Or uh, do we want to see uh, him be the first to draw that line to say there is only one justice system, not two justice systems? Uh, It's a difficult uh, conundrum for me. I don't know where I fall on that. So I'd love to hear from you about it. Anyway, that's the show for today. Have a great rest of the day. Uh, Until uh, tomorrow or till this afternoon, if you uh, decide to join uh, join me then, I'm Matt Napo for Coffee with the Dogs. See you tomorrow. (laughs) 